at that point in time, uh, Signet had sort of developed as kind of the classiest uh, of the Regency romances. And uh, there were some other little attempts, but uh, with Signet, even their print runs, which were considered quite healthy then, were like, for the Regency, they were like 60,000. And then one on the second book, uh, I remember having, I got the plot idea, and, and I told Hillary, we were down uh, in Wall Street at a restaurant, and we were having lunch, and I said, well, Hillary, I said, the only thing is, uh, you know, there was no sex in Regency's. Absolutely zippo nada. And I said, I've got a plot, Hillary, but, you know, it, I, I want sex in it. And it was at that point, which rarely happens, but it was an utter lack of noise in the restaurant. And everybody was like on point. And we got a good laugh out of that. And, and I told her uh, what I wanted to do. And she grinned and she said, go for it. And as a result, the the print run jumped up to like 130,000. That was the voice of Catherine Coulter, author of more than 80 novels, including some of the earliest Signet Regencies. We'll talk with Catherine about her time at the beginning of the Signet line, her work adding sex to Signet Regencies, and how she evolved into historical romances, and then, of course, into her longstanding career as a thriller writer. This is Faded Mates. I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels, and I write them. You're about to hear a great conversation with Catherine Coulter. We're not going to spend a whole lot more time introducing it. We'll talk more on the back end. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Catherine Coulter. We we try really hard not to do all the fangirling, but I have to say The Sherbrooke Bride was like the book of my, like of the greatest joy of my life when I read that book uh, right when it came out. And so I'm really very delighted to be talking to you today. And thank you so much for making time for us. Well, thank you for asking me. And I am so delighted <laughs> that you like the Sherbrooke Bride. You know, it seems to be everybody's favorite. It's a lemon book series. Well, we're going to get we're going to get into why and why you think it is. <laughs> we are in our fourth season of this podcast because we really love romance novels a whole lot. And over the last year, we have been interviewing um, the people, many of the people who we believe built the house of romance, so to speak. Um, and part of the reason why we're doing that, and I'm sure you've noticed this, is that romance doesn't get a whole lot of attention from the world at large. Um, and we feel like it's really important to collect the history of the genre as much as we possibly can. Um, so these conversations are these tra- what we're calling trailblazer recordings are really conversations that are very far-reaching, and we want to talk about all things you. <laughs> and I know that you have a book out next week, so we want to talk about that too. Um, but hopefully you'll give us a sense of your life through writing and through romance. Um, but we are both really thrilled to have you. 
Well, thank you very much. Those were lovely things to say. And it and it's true. It's true. You know, I'll never forget when I was started writing. Oh, yes, I'm a writer. What do you write? Children's books? <laughs> that, that was the most. That was the most uh, regular, you know. And then I think romance was next, you know. And you are almost embarrassed to say, "Well, yeah, you idiot." You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, I want to make some money. <laughs> and women are are eighty five percent of the of the retail market. So excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I think you guys are doing a wonderful thing and uh, getting the history down. That's that's very good. Catherine, can you tell us about how you started reading romance? Well, uh, in, you know, my mother would read aloud to me when I was like three years old, and 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 she read everything, everything. But my my very very favorite author is Georgia Hare, uh-huh. and uh, I believe she died in 1972, and she was the one who started the Regency genre. Yeah, mm-hmm. you knew you've read her, right? Yes, we yes we know her. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. So she, I I still think she's the class act. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always in in teaching. You know, I always say you're allowed three exclamation points a book, okay? That's it. <laughs> and she uses exclamation points after nearly every sentence. Exactly. But it's okay. It's the weirdest thing. You know, she, she does everything that you shouldn't do, and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, which goes to, you know, goes to show there really are no rules. Right. But I don't think many people are on her level of, of just delight, sheer delight. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite, Georgia Hare? Well, my favorite is Devil's Cub. <laughs> gotcha. Um, that was a good one. But, I mean, <laughs> which probably tracks very well with uh with you'll you'll be unsurprised that then I really fell in love with um the the Sherbrooke <laughs> Bride and lots of other books with similar heroes there. So we we call them assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I redeemed all that much. Yeah, well, it's, you know, romance in many ways has not changed all that much, right? <laughs> what about you, uh, Catherine? What was your favorite hair? Uh, the Grand Sophie. Oh, of course, a classic. Yeah, I just love the Grand Sophie. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, she was such a go-getter, and Sylvester. You know, or the wicked uncle. Talk about the the classic asshole. Who, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so you are reading hair, and you're reading sort of voraciously. Tell us about your life at this point. So, it's the, um, you know, where are you living in the world? How do you start thinking about actually putting pen to paper? Well, as you know, everybody has a talent, and it just depends if you a find the talent, b if you if you try to do something with it, and uh, and my talent was writing, but I never really recognized it. I just thought everybody could write a paper the night before and get an A. Uh-huh. It was just it was just very natural. It was just very natural, and you really didn't understand why your classmates hated your guts. <laughs> but they could do that. You know, they could do their own thing. So uh, anyway, I never really thought about it. And then, um, you know, I got a mass, uh, uh, I went to the University of Texas and then got a master's degree at Boston College. Uh-huh. And uh, at that point, my husband was in medical school in Columbia Presbyterian in Manhattan. And uh, 
one thing I've been extraordinarily lucky. You know how when you you don't know if you should go one direction or another, uh-huh. and then then you might go the one direction. And you think, well, what would have happened if I had? Well, if I blah, blah, blah. anyway, at the same time, I was offered uh, like an assistant professorship at a college in New Jersey, and then the other was a speechwriting job on Wall Street in Manhattan. So I got to weigh both of them. My dad had been a professor at UT, and he would tell me that academia is the most, it's a viper pit. <laughs> and he, he said, it, I've never seen anything like it. They cannot compare, businesses cannot compare to the viper pit that is academia. Even Wall Street. So, yeah, wow. <laughs> so I chose Wall Street, and I wrote uh, speeches. And uh, for a guy who was the president of uh, an actuarial firm, and your eyes are already glazing over, mine did. <laughs> but I'll never forget in the interview, he was this kind of desiccated little old guy. He was very nice, and he was the president. And he said, I have to speak a lot. He says, I don't know why people ask me to speak because I'm not very good. He said, can you make me funny? And I said, sure, eh. sure. <laughs> so uh, then at that time, uh, my husband, as I said, was at Columbia Presbyterian. I saw him maybe 30 minutes a day over spaghetti. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I was reading, all oh, 10 to 15 books a week in the evening. And then one night I said, I threw the book across the room and said, I can do better. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that I was so, I thought that I was a trailblazer. <laughs> but nobody ever done and that. And now look. Well, it turns out that maybe 60% of writers started that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can do better. Mm-hmm. So I went in and told my husband, and I, I have heard for, from so many women, and I just want to take them out and shoot them. Oh, well, my husband won't let me do blah, blah, blah. blah. Oh, <laughs> I go, oh, shut up. <laughs> uh, kick the jerk to the curb. And uh, he said, sure, he says, and he took the next weekend off, and together we plotted the first and last book, but that was the last one he helped plot. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And uh, and that was, the, the uh, that was what was the name of that? The Autumn Countess, mm-hmm. which I later rewrote and made it into The Countess, which is much, much better because it's funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's how it started. That book was published in 1979, so... Were you read it? Is that right around? Was it very quickly published? Well, what happened was, is, you know, since I was working full time, I would get up and write at like 4.30 and then get ready for work at, at 6.30. And uh, I've always been a morning person, so that worked for me. And I took about a year. And I'll never uh-huh. forget, I rode the A train, it's the express, down to Wall Street. And there was this uh, guy who worked at William Morrow. <laughs> Uh-huh. And so I said, oh, I'm writing a book. And yeah, right, honey. <laughs> and, and, he, and I think at the time he wanted to get in my pants. And so he was all sorts of encouraging and nice. <laughs> and what he did was he gave me the name of a freelance editor in the city. And she was also a model. And, um, and of course, at that time, nobody knew anything. And nobody knew anything until RWA was founded. Right. In uh, the early 80s. Right. And that's when things started opening up. But at that time, it was a, it was a black hole publishing. Yeah. But I was at least in the center of it. You were reading romance novels at this point. So you... Well, I read that, but uh, I don't know if you know this, but I would say that a good 
90%, maybe more, of, of all of my books have mysteries in them. Right. right. Yes. And so that's, so I love mysteries. And so it, it was just a natural thing to add, a, to have mysteries in it. So I read tons of mysteries and I read, and there, there were the early bodice rippers, which were a hoot. You know, we have the we have the eighteen year old virgin at the beginning. She loses her virginity. She's the hero. They're separated for five hundred pages, <laughs> and then they get together at the end. Oh, I love you! And uh, they were wonderful. They were absolutely incredible. And so uh, this editor said, "Well, let's go for it." And what she had was the top regency publishers sure and the top editors. And at the time, it was New American Library. They had the class act with Signet Regencies, uh-huh. and they were the only really class act in, in publishing. And so, uh, you know, you can now take courses on writing query letters, you know, 101. Yeah. And I like, well, dear Ms. Boss, this is my book, you know, <laughs> I hope you like it. Ah. <laughs> no, you're so stupid. And um, and again, you never know. There are, there are usually three reasons why you're bought in a house, okay? To, it, Back then and now, and number one is uh, a, a whole lot of writers. The majority of writers are always late. Mm. Contra- uh, writers under contract are always late turning in manuscripts, You're... and so they're going, "Ah, what are we going to do? What are we going to do?" You just called out Sarah real hard, and it's pretty amazing. <laughs> Sarah, come here and let me smack I'm you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Catherine. I'm sorry. <laughs> Meet your deadline, Sarah. Oh well, it, you know you drive a house crazy because then they're having to, they're having to do this, that, and the other, or, or they might buy a book because they really, really love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but those are the two main reasons, and I really don't know which one I was. Oh, <laughs> but, I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Hillary Ross called me uh, three days later, asked me out to lunch, and offered me a three book contract. So, uh, you know, the, I was very, very lucky. You know, she loves to tell the story how she pulled me up by my bootstraps out of a ditch. <laughs> so, it, <laughs> and that could have been true, I guess. And uh, she still lives on the west side of New York. Oh, that's great. She was a character. And uh, so it was it was very strange, but she loved my book. So what could I do but love her back? Of course. So I didn't have an agent. And so... When the the three book contract was coming up, because I was such an idiot and didn't know anything, I asked my editor she could recommend an agent. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, she recommended a very good friend of hers. And uh, so I realized that I could have negotiated myself a better contract. Mm-hmm. So that's how it all started. And so Hillary Ross, did she? found the New American Library. So for people who don't know, New American Library became Signet, correct? No, no. Uh, no, New American Library was subsumed by Putnam. Okay. Okay? Yep. And then Putnam, of course, was subsumed by Random House. There used to be the big seven sisters in New York, and I yeah. think now we're down to four. Right. Uh, we won't go into Amazon, who, who just <laughs> did wonderful things. 
I am currently holding up a, an original copy of The Rebel Bride. Look down at your, at your app right now and you'll see the covers of the original Signet Regency. So could you talk a little bit about Signet as a line? Because we talk a lot here about category romance, but we haven't talked really at all about Signet, which is one of the reasons why we were so excited to have you come on, because we want to talk obviously about your historicals and how power, how much of a powerhouse you you had become. But in those early days at Signet, what was the vibe? <laughs> what were people thinking there? Well, at that point in time, uh, Signet had sort of developed as kind of the classiest uh, of the Regency uh-huh. romances. And uh, there were some other little attempts uh, by other houses, and I I cannot remember any other imprints at this sure. I just can't remember. But uh, with Signet, even their print runs, which were considered quite healthy then, were like, for the Regency, they were like 60,000. And then when, what happened was, is on the second book, uh, I remember having, I got the plot idea, and uh, the second book, was that The Rebel Bride? Yes. Okay, and, and I told Hillary, we were down uh, in Wall Street at a restaurant, and we were having lunch, and I said, well, Hillary, I said, the only thing is, uh, you know, there was no sex in Regencies. Absolutely zippo nada. <laughs> right. And I said, I- I've got a plot, Hillary, but, you know, it, I-, I want sex in it. And it was at that point which rarely happens, but it was an utter lack of noise in the in the in the restaurant. And everybody was like on point. And we got a good laugh out of that and, and I told her uh, what I wanted to do and she grinned and she said, Go for it. Oh great. And as wow. a result the the print run jumped up to like a hundred and thirty thousand. Oh, look at that! They were like <laughs> because mm-hmm. everybody loved it. Yeah. And then uh, you know, then Joan Wolf, who's a, who's a friend now, always always, and she was at Signet at that time, and uh, so she, she stuck her toes in. But that was really the the start of putting sex in Regencies. It was not discreet. It you know in in those days. They truly were bodice rippers, and the sex could be extraordinarily explicit. And uh, I did extraordinarily explicit sex, I think, through the Sherbrooke Bride series. And even toward the end of that, I just kind of lost interest in it and really uh, spent much more time on the plot and the characters Uh because I'd read so many books. And uh, I'd go to conferences where editors would say, now you want to have a sex scene every three chapters <laughs> or every 20 pages or whatever. <laughs> and and it was like it was gratuitous. And that's when I realized you don't want anything gratuitous in a book uh-huh. because it it pulls the reader out of the book, which it did me. And I'm a reader, a big reader. So what are you doing? Who cares? You know, these are just parts and it, it doesn't mean anything. In other words, most of the time, the sex scenes did not forward the plot. They detracted. They just, they were just, blah, they were just thrown in. So, uh, and I just kind of lost interest in it. And so that's when I just kind of went down, 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 down and stopped uh, with explicit sex. Uh, and most people didn't. In fact, today, 
again, I wish that people writing romance would not depend so heavily on this really, really explicit sex because it's not necessary. And if you're going to do a sex scene, you want to have humor in it. It shouldn't be body part A and body part B and, oh, this is so serious and blah, blah, blah. No. You know, blah. Anyway, all right, I'm now off my bandwagon. That's okay. I love a bandwagon. (laughs) (laughs) This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Cara Dion, author of Indiscreet. All right, here we go. Are you ready? Ready. On her 21st birthday, our heroine Min is stood up at the opera by some jerk. But there just happens to be somebody in the seat next to her. Very handsome, I'm sure. So handsome. They have an instant attraction. They bond over their love of music and opera. And they have a, like, one-night stand, as one does they leave the opera immediately and have a one-night stand, Moonstruck style. Moonstruck style. I exactly. love it. So, except, Jen, what do you think happens the next day when Min goes to her university opera program? <laughs> Is he her professor, Sarah? Oh, my God. He's totally her professor. Totally. So... It you gets, could not be more delighted by this, and I love my it. My favorite. This is my favorite. I cannot wait to read this. This one is for anybody who, like me, loves a professor-student romance. This is very forbidden. Um, it's all about secrets, and uh, there's a little bit of an age gap in here, if you like an age gap romance. And all I have to say about this is it sounds freaking great. There's a secret. A dark shadow from Min's past makes their... Uh, entanglement even more complicated, and this is my favorite part, and the music that drove them both forward and bound them together could also be the thing to tear them apart. Amazing. You can find Indiscreet in print, ebook, and on KU. You can find out more about the author at caradion.author on Instagram. Thank you to Cara Dion for sponsoring this week's episode of Faded Mates. So you wrote seven signets and seven regencies, and then you moved to what you call historicals. So, well, no, I call them hysterical. <laughs> oh, amazing! I, yes, I wrote long hysterical. <laughs> so, and that was that was interesting because at that point, after I I finished that contract, uh, I had the brain to say, I think I need a real agent. Yeah. <laughs> And not the editor's best friend. Uh-huh. I had met Peter Heggie, who was the secretary of the Authors Guild in New York. So I gave him a call. We had moved to San Francisco because my husband had um, was doing his residence here, residency here at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh-huh. And, of course, a writer is totally portable. And at that time, my company, I was kind of the golden last and so they even moved me out here to do a job that I had no uh, knowledge that I that I couldn't do uh-huh. because it was like installing a computer system on the West Coast. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> right, honey, I can't even do Zoom. All right. <laughs> so anyway, neither, that's neither here nor there. But I so I called Peter Hagee from San Francisco and told him I wanted a female agent. Mm-hmm. And so he gave me the name of, of two women, and then he gave me one man. And so when I came back to New York on business and so forth, I met these people, 
And I swear to you, I do not even remember the women's names. The, uh, I went to William Morris. They're a great big agency in New York. And I met with the guy he recommended. His name was Robert Gottlieb. And he'd been out of the mail room, and that is still spelled M-A-L-E. <laughs> um, and and he was in kind of this closet with no window. He'd been up. He'd been out of the mail room for like six months, and we talked. And uh, he and I I said, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" <laughs> and he said, "I want to be on the board of directors of William Morris when I'm by the time I'm forty-five. So I never forgot that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he became my agent. He absolutely enraged Hillary, absolutely enraged. And the the head of of the head of uh, the house of New American Library had to get involved to calm things down. (laughs) And my darling, this is over a ten thousand book advance, a ten thousand dollar book advance. I mean, it was because we're back in nineteen eighty. Sure. Okay, nineteen eighty one. And so that worked out. Robert and I have been together uh, longer than all of his marriages. <laughs> but I give I give great gifts. I give great gifts. So you're the reason why. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. And I'll never forget this. Just to the side, I'll never forget. He called me in 1987, and he was hyperventilating. He was so excited. And he was on the board of directors of William Morris when he was 37. Oh, that's oh, great news. That. Yeah, so it's a great story. And then he got out outsharked by Michael Ovitz in 2000 and then started Trident Media. And uh, so that's, you know, that started a new uh, chapter of his life. And he also married Olga, who was an orienteer at, at Olympic in uh, <laughs> Russia. Wow. wow. He's a Russian fanatic. Anyway, and so they're still married. They have two grown kids. Well, almost grown kids now. So everything is good with him. And as I say, we've been together for wow. how long? I mean, years That's and years a long time. and years, well over 30 years. In the mid-80s, Bob DeForio, who was uh, on the sales team for New American Library, he became the head uh, of the, the president. And um, he and I met. And I really didn't know who he was, but we we just had an immediate relationship. And uh, so he was in part, uh, he started pushing me immediately. And I'll never forget, um, it was a fire song. It was the first, or yeah, it was the first book in the Medieval series. Uh And they decided... He decided that they were going to have a fire song perfume. So they attached these little vials of perfume <laughs> to all the books and, and, and shrink wrapped them. The problem was, <laughs> oh my God. they were shipped and they were shipped in trucks and then, you know, whatever. Oh. And so the, 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 the perfume turned horrible. Oh, no. <laughs> I must have gotten 2,000 emails saying, what? not emails, letters saying, what? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, 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 that was so, that was so fun. And still I, you survived it, Catherine. The books must have been great. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, things just, you know, there are so many just cute little things that happen through the years, you know. That song series, I mean, I think I read every one of those books a dozen times. I would get (laughs) one and then just read them straight through and then immediately start again. Um, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit just in general about what it was like writing. When we talk now about when we look back on the, the 70s, the 80s, the early 90s, that period of time really felt like the heyday of romance. Like, it's never yeah. been like that since. It was the golden age, I yeah. call it. It and really was the golden age. Do you feel like you knew at the time what you were a part of? Oh, no, you never do. Yeah. No, no, yeah. no, no. Uh, I look back now and realize it was the golden age. And, of course, this was pre-Amazon. Uh, and uh, it, and everybody was just, I mean, the print runs were outrageous. They were over a million copies. And it That's was wild. It, it, yeah, it was why it was a wild time. But you really, you know, you're writing and then a book comes out and it does like this. And when we get a contract and we're, we're going to conferences and and uh, you just don't think, well, I'm, I'm a part of the golden era because at the time, you know, you're still a part of it. (laughs) Yeah. And and you're not looking back. You're not looking back. You're looking forward always. And what are the, tell tell us a little bit about what the readers are like at this point. Like, what are these conferences like? I think the last one was an RWA. But when I compare it to the ones throughout the years, they're not that different at all. Okay. They're really not. I, I, I will tell you, uh, there were the the big writers, you know, like uh, Janet Daly was huge then, absolutely huge. And uh, she, I, I remember, she would travel to a conference with her handlers. <laughs> okay, there'd be her personal handler, and then there'd be somebody from the publishing house, and then they would answer most of the questions. But in the other workshops. Uh, by the unsuperstars, you had then as you had now is people will stand up and say, "Okay, you want to do this, 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 and this, and mm. don't do that, and don't do this." And people are out; they want to get published. That's what they want more than anything in the universe. And they're taking wild notes. Yeah. And and I can remember thinking then, this is nuts. Uh-huh. What you want to do, darling, is to write a good story. Forget the rest of the shit. Okay. Yeah. And um, I, I just had a few do's and don'ts, but mainly, you know, I even back then I'd say, sit your butt in a chair mm-hmm. and write. Uh-huh. Yeah. You cannot edit a blank page. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you write crap. It really doesn't, because now you have something to work on. And uh, but people, they, they would preach. There was a lot of preaching because I'm published and you're not. And, uh, and and it was just, and I don't know if it's still like that today. Uh, it was in, you know, the last time I was at a conference, it was more or less like that. Uh, and, and these were kind of superstars like, uh, what's her face? Uh, oh, she retired and stopped writing. Uh, Laverne Spencer. Uh, so you had again a huge disparity between the superstars 
And the people who desperately wanted to be published, this had been true forever. Yeah. Forever. So can we, while we're talking about authors, other authors, could you give us a sense of like, who was your community? So you obviously, you're very busy. You have a day job, a high-powered day job. Your husband is a, is studying. No, I quit. I quit my job in 1981 because I could afford, I could no longer afford to work. Right. It's the dream, right? Right, yeah. of course. Yeah, so I was full-time writer from 1981, got a computer in 1981. It was $10,000. It was <gasps> a vector. Wow. And it had a, a five-inch floppy disk <laughs> and took a week to learn how to do it. But I sure. expected that, knew it. But it was it got rid of all the crap because if you made mistakes before on an electric typewriter, you had to retype an entire retype. page. right. But, mm-hmm. you know, you just press a little button and, and crap's gone. So it was sure. it was an amazing, amazing thing. Graham Greene, another writer, I'll never forget, he said in the mid-'80s, you're not a real writer if you oh. use a computer. And I was like, you idiot. <laughs> oh, Graham. Oh, Graham. That's cute. That's cute, Graham. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, so in 1985, I was in Houston. Uh, I had a couple of medical writer friends who have sort of who sort of dropped out a little bit later, dropped out of the picture. Uh-huh. Uh, but in 1985, I was in Houston, and uh, this is when Rebecca Brandywine of was course. really big. Oh, yeah. And her mother, so she really wanted to have lunch with me, and I was kind of, I said, well, this would be fun to see what she has to say. She's a, she was an, uh, an agent, Rebecca's mom. And uh, so then... I'll never forget, she kissed me off for somebody else to have lunch with. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of looking around, and I see um, an empty chair at this table. And I go up, and I say, can I sit here? And we met, and this was Linda Howard oh. and Iris Johansson and Kay oh, Hooper. The whole and crew. we became best friends at that point, and we have stayed that way forever. That's nice. That's great. So... Yeah, yeah. And my gosh, and all four of you have just, you're still all writing. It, You know, that's rare when you may, make a group of friends when you're young at the job and <laughs> you're all still there. Yeah. And everybody, everybody became successful. Uh-huh. Everybody, all, uh-huh. all four of us, which was very good to happen because you wouldn't want one or two people right. not as successful as you when we go on trips and stuff together. Mm-hmm. So it worked out very, very well. Uh, I don't think there was, you know, no jealousy. It was everybody was very supportive of everybody else. So it worked. So around this time, one of the things that's interesting is you really had a productive period in the '80s where you were writing historicals. You you wrote a few like silhouette intimate moments. You were clearly starting to transition into doing kind of mystery thriller. How did this, like, did you feel like you got guidance through this process, or was this something that you just really were like, these are the things I want to write? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I remember, I think it was in 1985, and we were in Europe on a train in Switzerland, and this entire plot came into my brain, which had never happened before, and it was contemporary. And I said, go away. I don't want to write contemporary. Go away. And it didn't. So uh, I wrote it when I, I got home, and I realized it was a short contemporary romance, and I had no idea what to do with it. So I called a friend, Debbie Gordon, who's no longer writing, but she was very big at that time in, at Silhouette. And she said, okay, she said, 
this is what you tell Robert, this is what he wants to ask for. And so I did, and he did, and uh, I was with Leslie Wanger, and uh-huh. there were, and so it was it was a three book series, Aftershocks, uh-huh. The Aristocrat, yep, and Afterglow. And she said, "Okay, now I've got the A's. What are the B's going to be?" And I, I, I said, "Honey, there ain't no more water in this well." And uh, so it was just those three, but they were fun. They were like a little dessert, a little dish and sorbet. You know? Yeah, because they're only about sixty-five thousand words, as opposed to a hundred, hundred and ten thousand. Uh-huh. And no, there was no, there was no guidance in um, nineteen eighty-eight. It was. The idea came to me. It wasn't a plot then. It was just an idea. Uh, just to back up one second, this was False Pretenses, and it was my very first hardcover, and it was a romantic suspense. You know, not a suspense, or a romantic suspense. And um, the heroine was a concert pianist, and, they, you know, when you change genres, the most important thing you want to do is to eliminate as many unknowns as you can. And I picked up the piano because I'm a pianist. My mother was a concert pianist organist, and I knew everything about it. I knew Uh all the music. So I I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. So we're in New York City, and uh, then it was, of course, a mystery. And... um, but it was a romantic suspense because you can't be a romance unless uh, there's a central core that's a man and a woman getting together in a relationship. And then everything else can be around it. It doesn't matter. It can be, you know, Mars or it can be uh, <laughs> right. uh, murders or it can be anything you want. But to be a romance, you have to have the central core being the relationship. Uh-huh. And so that's what it was. So uh, they wanted to push it as this. I don't even remember. I said, no, it's a romantic suspense. So they said, okay. And that was the first hardcover. And then I wrote probably four or five more uh, contemporary um, romantic suspense, which were a lot of fun to do. So anyway, uh, I was writing probably three or four books a year. And, and, you know, it's easy. Now, of course, I write, never mind, uh, because now I'm an elder. But anyway, um, uh, I was writing a whole lot of books a year, and I'll never forget. Uh, Then Putnam, and Putnam had bought, as I said, New American Library. Uh And the head of Putnam was Phyllis Grant. Yes. She's probably the best woman publisher she was in the world. She, I, I absolutely would kill for her. She would call me up and say, Catherine, I need a quote. And I said, what would you like me to say? <laughs> you know? I mean, uh-huh. I, whatever she wanted from me, she got because she was absolutely wonderful. And uh, they uh, went back to New York, and there was this big round table at the plaza in the in the uh, tea room there in the court. And, uh, and I was introduced to uh, my new editor. And they made an offer that was just outrageous, absolutely outrageous. I will not tell you what it is, but it was it was outrageous. And so I went I went there, and what they wanted was the hysterical romances. And so <laughs> hysterical romances. <laughs> well, I try to make them funny. I really do. Oh, one thing I wanted to add: talk about luck. 
those first regency seven six six or seven regencies. Uh-huh. I went back and rewrote them. Yeah, I want to talk about that. And they and I made them so much better. I turned them into uh, historical romances. I made them funny. And then they hit the New York Times, you know, because that we were no longer regency. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Lumi Labs, creators of microdose gummies, which deliver entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. You know what I needed to feel just amount, the right amount of good recently, Sarah? Tell me. When I was um, getting on a plane. Oh, I think air, right? airports are just sort of like stressful places now. And I found that um, I took a gummy before we like got off to N O'Hare and went through security. And it just was like a nice experience for me. I just felt like sort of my anxiety about the plane and all of the like hustle bustle of the airport was just a little, took the edge off ever so slightly. It was delightful. I love it. If you're interested in hearing more about microdosing, go to microdose.com and you can learn all about um, microdose gummies. They deliver a perfect entry-level dose of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And you can use the code FADEDMATES to get free shipping and 30% off of your first order. Links can be found in show notes as always, but again, that's microdose.com, code FATEDMATES. And thanks to Lumi Labs for sponsoring the episode. Did you go to Putnam and say, I want to rewrite these? Yeah, yeah. I said, I really would like them because I think that they're, uh, they're, they're kind of a bummer to me now. And, and I don't think, I think I can make them a thousand percent better and make them longer and richer and funnier and make the, you know, and all that. So, and they said, sure, go for it. That's incredible. And so what is that process like? So this is... The mid '80s, so you're—it's only five or six years. It's sort of yeah. It's not even a decade since they came out. So, uh, what was that process like as a writer to revise essentially yourself? So <laughs> right, you know, at a distance. It was easy. It was very, very easy because the book was already there. Yeah. So I didn't have to worry about, oh, dear, is that plot going to work here and there? No, 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 I didn't have to worry about it. All I had to worry about was, let's make this really, really fun. Mm-hmm. Was it driven by, like, I'm a better writer now? I've had more yes. practice? Or yes. the rules don't apply to me in the same way anymore, or both? Both. Okay. Both. And, of course, Regencies, ever since Joan and I were big at Signet, Regency started changing. Mm-hmm. Well, they got sexier. Yeah, yeah, and that and that was because of Joan and me, which was, mm-hmm. in, and I can take credit for that, and so does she. Good. So that was fun. So you're at the plaza. They won historicals. They won historicals. So in a period of three and a half years, I wrote three trilogies. Wow. The, uh, the Wyndham Legacy, the Legacy Trilogy, the Fire Trilogy, and another trilogy that escapes my brain at the moment. Uh, but I, I, it, it never happened in my life, but I was burned to my toes. Yeah, I'm Absolutely sure. burned to my toes. And um, so it was in 1995, and I was at a family reunion in Texas. And my sister, who has never done this before or since, walked up to me and said, have you ever heard of a little town on the coast of Oregon called the Cove? 
They make the world's greatest ice cream, and bad stuff happens. <laughs> and and I just went on point. You know, I said, oh, my what? heavens, oh, my heavens. <laughs> and so I, I told my... Um, my editor, and of course, I understood their position. I mean, if it ain't uh, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Sure. Yeah. But you know, I really dug in my heels. Well, they'd milked you for nine books in three years. No, but it, but at that point, I had enough uh, power. Yeah. I said, "Give me, give me a chance." And so then that's when I wrote the Cove. They and then when they got it, they they wanted to make it into a hardcover. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, uh, failure is well and good, but you don't want to fail in hardcover, and who knows how this book will be received. Yeah. So they brought it out in paperback in 1996, I believe, and it, it really did extraordinarily well. I was very happy for that. And then the publisher called, and they said, well, when's the next one in the series? <laughs> and I said, what series? What are you talking about? And I kid you not, this this will happen. And it happened, and there was this voice in the back of my head, and he said, Catherine, what about me? And it was Dylan Savage. Uh-huh. Mm, yeah. And so then they, the maze was basically Sherlock's book, and this is the book they got together. And uh-huh. uh, then after that, you had The Target, which is one of my all-time favorite books. With the hunt, the you know Ramsey Hunt and Emma, uh-huh. and and I'll never forget. You know, I wrote uh, international thrillers with J.T. Ellison. Yeah, six of them, and I'll never forget. J.T. told me he said, "Well, a series isn't really a series until book four. and I was kind of you know laughing at her. <laughs> she was perfectly right. She was totally right. The fourth book, The Edge, started that series. Uh-huh. And, and then it became, then it, it just went from there. So, uh, and, and at that point, I was writing one historical a year and one uh, FBI thriller a year. And it worked very, very well because there's such disparate genres and your brain gets unconstipated. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. sure. And uh, then it's just been about, I guess, about four or five years ago, I could just do one book a year, and that was fine. That was perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it, it's been wonderful. It, it's it's really, it's real. I, I feel blessed, uh, very, very blessed, and very, very lucky, and I've met so many fascinating writers and publishers in, over the years. And as I say, Robert and I are still together. <laughs> Amazing. He'll call up and talk about stuff. You know, it's wonderful. Can we return maybe to the Sherbrooke Bride for a second? (laughs) Sure. So Sarah talked about it being like one of her favorites. You mentioned that so many readers still talk about it. So yeah, is this when we're talking about romance? Is this why do you think this is the book that so many romance readers connected to? Is it like the primordial Catherine Coulter book? Like, what made it the one? I think that everybody, women, I think that women respond differently to a real alpha male who's an asshole, basically. But he's a real alpha male. Mm -hmm. And it's how the woman, he ends up worshiping her her toenails, (laughs) you know? And I think women... It's on a visceral level. They love that. They, they're they just 
fascinated by the um, the uh, alpha male. That, that's my own feeling. And I also think I was speaking to um, a, a friend of mine earlier today about how we were interviewing you, Catherine, and my friend Sophie Jordan, who also writes historicals, was saying that we we talked about how you really mastered the grovel in your books. I mean, you're here, you put them through the ringer at the end because they've been such assholes. <laughs> <laughs> That is a great well, choice. I mean, you're not going to find Alan Alda character as as a woman's <laughs> hero. Let's get, I mean, let's get real here. You know, uh, a beta male is of no interest to anybody except fixing your computer. Um, <laughs> but at, but truthfully, I think that the magic of a of a Catherine Coulter book is that sort of sense, as you said, worshiping her to her toenails. Only yeah. once he has been clubbed over the head with how terrible he's been to her. <laughs> And that is, it's that punishment, too. <laughs> it's discipline. That's what and men love to be disciplined, even if they don't admit it. You know, they just love it. They love it. On the other hand, the youngest brother, Tyson, who starred in uh, The Scottish Bride, mm-hmm. that's probably my favorite mm. because it, it was such a... It, it it was such what he what he evolved he evolved he evolved so much and he was such a good man mm-hmm. you know and 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 so I take it back about the alpha male uh, because uh, uh, Tyson was was absolutely amazing to me I loved him I mean was it a challenge to write someone who then was really different Oh no no I just I I loved him. From the moment that book started, when he was dealing with his three children, and he didn't know what to do with them, <laughs> and he was very, you know, he he was just he evolved so much and turned into such a, like a kind, wonderful person who was never an asshole. He was just stupid. <laughs> And he wasn't stupid. That's the wrong word. He was just caught up in this view, in this worldview of himself that was so limiting. Mm-hmm. It was so very limiting. And his brothers always made fun of him, you know. And I'll never forget in the, in the beginning of Sherbert Bide when they're having their quarterly bastard meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so and I, that just came out of my fingertips. I said, "What are you doing?" <laughs> and then Tyson goes <laughs> and runs out. You know, he wants the wants none of that. But uh, <laughs> right. that 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 was that was great sport. So as you think about your career, as you sort of look back, and I mean, obviously forward as well. I mean, you you show no signs of stopping. Um, are there moments that you can sort of pinpoint of particular challenge as a writer or from the genre perspective? Is there is there some lesson that you were sort of hard learned that you can share with us? But let me just say, I do not believe in Myers block. Mm. Uh-huh. And okay. I never have. What I believe in is a bad plot. And it happened one time, and it was uh, an FBI thriller. I don't even remember which one. But I got to page 85, and it had been a bear. And then all of a sudden, it stopped cold. Uh, and I realized, okay, this is a shitty plot. Uh, and so I threw the 85 pages in the garbage can and started over. Because if you're a writer, 
you have to be honest with yourself and what you're producing. And when a book stops in its tracks and the characters look at you and say, please go away, <laughs> you know it's a bad plot. And it's up to you not to try to keep forcing it. And you and the, the trick is, is you have to trust that there's another plot, you know, in the parking lot in your brain that's going to come driving out. And it will. And it did. So that was really the only time, um, but no, I'll, I'll never forget with the, well, this, this might, this might be interesting to writers with the cove when I first wrote it and my editor was the head of Berkeley, Leslie Gelman, uh-huh. a wonderful, wonderful editor and, and leader. And um, so when I first wrote The Cove, it was a brand new genre for me. And um, I wrote the entire plot out in the first 50 pages. And and you know how she dealt with it? She called me up, she says, and she wanted to see uh, what I was doing. And she called me back and she was saying, Catherine, okay, now you know what the plot is. <laughs> Tell me the story. Oh, I and love that's that. That's all she said. That's, that's all a she good said. piece of advice. I've written the whole thing out in the first 50 pages so the reader would know everything. Yeah. And then she was just, for all matter of fact, now tell me the story. And I did. Amazing. Uh, so a good editor, you've got to be lucky in your editors, too. I know some authors who have had nine editors uh-huh. at the same house. And this is never good. This is always sucky. So I've been very, very lucky in my editor. Who is your editor now, Catherine? My editor now is a brand new person. I'm with William Morrow, and her name is Mae Chen. She's fairly hands-off. She actually, I'd had David Heifel, and uh, he had the absolute gall to retire and move to Tuscany. (laughs) How dare. That's terrible. I I was just cursing him. Yeah, don't you dare do it. anyway. So he said, I promise that I have spoken to May and she will do very good by you. Please trust me, Catherine, and, and you know, and don't shoot her. <laughs> she's she's very she's very kind and to be very honest, my husband is basically my editor uh-huh. on the uh, the FBI thrillers. He can't write his way out of a paper bag, but he's an incredible editor. That's great. Since I've become an elder, you know, I've slowed down. So I had decided with Reckoning, the, the book that's coming out next week, I don't want to be under contract anymore. I want to just write what I want to write, and then I'll sell it. And then they said, oh, please, 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 blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, but I don't want, it. I don't want, make it two years. Okay, anything you want. No problem, not a problem. And so I'm on page 80, <laughs> and the outline is due a year from today. From this month. There you go. <laughs> well, so here you go. You can't stop. <laughs> you can't stop. You can't stop. But, um, you know, I've been, I guess five years ago, I was asked if I was a pantser or a plotser, and I didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> but I'm definitely a pantser, are you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which means you're always rewriting and rewriting and changing yeah. and constantly build up we call it constantly constantly, constantly. which is like, why it terrified me that you rewrote the rebel bride <laughs> so i was like oh god i can never go back 
I'll throw it all out and start over. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> you don't understand. The book is there. Yes. And the pot was there. So there, right. was no, there were no hurries. Now you're just putting on different tree ornaments. Nice. And different lights. I mean, it was wonderful. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Catherine, tell us a little bit. I want to sort of just talk a little about the shift from Catherine Coulter, you know, romance trailblazer to Catherine Coulter, real powerhouse in thrillers. Was it an easy transition in the world? Meaning, did thrillers welcome you? I know that, you know, it's tough. It, it's tough to be a woman writing thrillers in the thriller world. That and And I'm wondering, did you have that experience or was it very generally welcoming? That's a very good observation. And the absolute truth is, I never thought about it. That's good. Um, the first time, uh, you know, the when they put, it took a while, they put the second book, The Maze, in hardcover. And uh, it made the times, but it didn't, it wasn't in the, in the top five. But then they just kept getting stronger and stronger. And by the time I went to actually, uh, I'd never been to BoucherCon. I was just not interested. And all my friends said it's, it's, they didn't like it. But anyway, Thriller Fest in New York City uh, was a different matter. And by the time I started going to Thriller Fest, the, the FBI series was, was really well-grounded. Mm-hmm. And was was doing well. It wasn't like the third, fourth, or fifth book. It was like the eighth or ninth book in that series. And there was never there was never a problem. Uh, you know, um, it, it was very welcoming. I really liked Lee Childs. I, I just met a whole bunch of really really nice people. Yeah, men as well as women, like Lisa Gardner, who was such a sweetheart. And I and. Um, I, I can't remember other names at the point because I haven't been in like three years. Um, but it was just very, very welcoming. And um, they made me, I, I think, well, they, the first year I went, it, it wasn't because I was interested. They had made me the um, the interview of the year or something. I can't remember what they called it, where you're in front and, and you're, you know, you're interviewed by somebody, whatever. Anyway. So I, I just never experienced that. But again, a lot of people, men and women, who go to Thriller Fest who are uh, either unpublished or still in like the B rung, uh-huh. I do not know what their experiences are. Anybody I ever met, you know, was wonderful. And, 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 and I'm not a jerk, you know, I'll talk talk to everybody. It didn't matter. So, um, it was just never an issue at the very beginning, you know, oh, do you write children's books Uh and that kind of crap? Uh But, um, it, it just didn't matter. And people would say, oh, you wrote romance. I said, yes, 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 yes. You know, cause I've never, I'm not ashamed of them at all. I love them. I wish I could still write two books a year. One in hysterical. When I couldn't write two books a year, that's when I went to the novellas with Grace and Sherbrooke. Uh-huh. Right. Are you familiar with those at all? Yes, yes. I've read them all. Oh, well, you're so wonderful. <laughs> well, the sixth one uh, will be out in uh, October because Nicole, who is God, uh-huh. um, and she's with, she heads up the uh, digital division at Trident, which is Robert's uh, agency. 
Oh, she's incredible. She is absolutely incredible. If you ever, her name is Nicole Robson, uh-huh. R-O-B-S-O-N. If you ever need anything, <laughs> anything to do, she's at the Trident Media Group in New uh-huh. York City, and she is smart. She's kind. She knows everything. Uh, so she would she would help you without a problem. Anyway, she likes to put them near Halloween because they're woo woo. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is. I mean, that is the piece of that is the piece of the culture puzzle that I think is so fascinating as a as a writer. Just looking at your career, you really have told so many different kinds of stories. Right. Um, and for somebody for. You know, for writers who are often told in a genre, right, where we are often told, like, stay in your lane, um, you know, the idea, I think part of the reason why the Sherbrooke Brides shattered everything I I was, I had thought historical was is because there was that, that ghosty piece. Um, or the Virgin Bride, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd never expect it. But, I mean, I really feel like um, one and of the— And she now lives in the past— I love it. You know, she yeah. she found her happy ever after. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think that there is there is if you've never read Catherine Coulter's romances, I think there are so many different avenues to take, mm-hmm. and um, that's really remarkable. It's re- I mean, you've just uh, I mean, you're a trailblazer. <laughs> There's a reason why we reached out. Well, you are so sweet, and if you're kissing yeah. up, you're doing it very well. I- <laughs> Thank you. I'm really not. I really do think your books are great. Yeah, and we love the genre, and we love to people—we just—God, we love romance so much. We just love romance. Well, if if you love romance so much, still, I I very rarely read um, contemporary romances because Uh I have found them still to be—we call it popping dicks. (laughs) And— I mean, you tell a story and get rid of the stuff that's extraneous. It's like people are using horrible language. I stopped about 12 books ago. I never use bad language anymore because it's gratuitous. You don't need it. There's always another way to say it without saying fuck. There is another way to say that. And sometimes that's appropriate, and I have to grind my teeth not to do it. But again... um, so many books you have gratuitous bad language. You've you've read them, and you have gratuitous sex scenes. Stop it! Just stop it. Tell a good story. Can I ask a question? Do you think that there is a similar issue with gratuitous violence in thrillers? Of course, anything that unnecessary is gratuitous. If you want to talk about ripping somebody's guts out and eating them, well. <laughs> Good I mean, luck. I'm not going to read your freaking book. I'm not going yeah, to. Why? Right. Why do I care? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you killed this person because of this, that, and the other reason. Get on with the story. Yeah. Gratuitous violence. All, those three things are the major three. You hit it on the nail. You hit the nail on the hammer there. Hit the nail on the head with a hammer. Okay. <laughs> Love that. I just hate gratuitous stuff. And in the romances, it's still rife. And I don't know why this is. I, d- I don't understand. It would seem to me that the genre would have weeded this out over the years, but it has not. Anyway, I've, my, my soapbox is now in the closet again. <laughs> yeah. 
Catherine, I wonder, we end all of our conversations this way. So, um, you know, I, I hope that, I hope you'll humor us. When we talk about trailblazers, we often come to it, come, come to the table with, you know, a, a preconceived idea of the answer to this question. But what is the hallmark of a Catherine Coulter novel? What, what is the thing you leave on the table every time? Oh, you guys are just full of good questions. <laughs> uh, in the it, let me let me just do the address the FBI series. Uh-huh. Yeah, is my promise to the reader is there is always justice at the end, sure. and I will not kill off a major character. Mm. Uh-huh. But there has got to be. It's always a good ending. Justice. We always have justice at the end. So there's no ex. Uh, what's the word, existential crap going on that leaves the reader wanting to shriek. No, no, it's done. This this chapter now is done, handled. Although I do bring characters back. And what about the romances? The romances, I, I would say that after I rewrote those first six books, I realize that the trick the trick really is to have as much humor as you can. And if you're dialogue driven, which I hope most writers are because after a page and a half, and this is another thing romance novels do, wow, page and a half of introspection and you're already lost. <laughs> you can't even remember what the character asked. The character asked a question and we have a page and a half of introspection. What? What are you doing? Anyway, if you can say something aloud, you say it aloud. And, and if you can do it, have humor. If yeah. you have humor, just about anything will fly. Mm-hmm. So I, that that's always, uh, I, I didn't do it in all the books, but there is humor whenever I can do it. And they're going to end well. Yeah. Well. But everybody's going to say that they're going to end well because a romance novel, that's what the reader expects. These two people are going to go through the ringer and then they're going to end down on the other side and they're going to be mated for life. That is why women really like romance because it's filled with hope. Uh It's filled with hope. No matter what you endure in all of this, it's going to work out. Well, Um, thrillers too. Right. Justice is served often comment on, oh, so many romance novelists end up writing thrillers. And the reality is it makes perfect sense to us that that is, that's a, a possible career arc because justice and hope being served are, you know, they're both happily ever afters in a certain sense, right? They are. And they're, well, not, they're happily ever afters for that one plot. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are other things going on, of course. But no, you're perfectly right. You're perfectly right. There's hope and there's justice, and and things are going to be okay. And I promise you that. No matter what I do to those characters, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Did you happen to get an ARC of a reckoning? No. No. But I'm going to ask for one. We can ask Karen for them. Well, I prefer that you bought it. <laughs> I will okay. do that too. Fine. We'll do that too. <laughs> I'll take those orders. That's fine. <laughs> well, there was a surprise at the end because readers have been bugging me about this for a long time. Ooh. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. Okay. Great. I don't know if it's great, but we'll see. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Um, and so, Catherine, uh, one last question. The 
as you think about your, you know, more than 80 books, I think we're at now. I'm on 88. Number 88. So in 88 books, if there, we've talked about books that your readers have really loved that have resonated. Are there, is there a book that you think back on and think that was really, that was, that was really fabulous. That's the one I wish everybody could read forever. That's yes, indeed. My own personal favorite is Beyond Eden. I uh-huh. wrote it in the '90s, and it's my very, very own personal favorite. I, that book, book moved me profoundly. Why? The heroine Lindsay, her attitude on life and how she deals with what she goes through, which is a whole lot. Have you Have you guys read it? I I don't think I have read this. No, one. I don't think so. Okay, well, it's it, again, it's a contemporary, and it's got a mystery in it, but again, it's a romantic suspense, okay? And we have the the hero in it is what you want every hero to be, down to his toenails, mm-hmm. which are, 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 you know, he buffs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if he does, but it's a, it, it will move you, I hope, profoundly. And it ended up right. And it ended up right. Wow. You know what's amazing? A lot of that was amazing. I mean, a lot, aside from, like, that whole conversation. (laughs) What's amazing is, like, a lot of these interviews, it's as though no one has ever asked these women to talk about their life in romance. I mean, I don't—I think a lot of people have not been asked about that. right. And so the stories are just— Wild. One of the things that is like really persistent in this generation of authors that we've interviewed is kind of their success feels really predicated on whether or not they were lucky enough to find good people. Uh-huh. And it was really clear from talking to Catherine Coulter that she felt really lucky and found a lot of really good people, not just friends, author friends, not just her husband, but in publishing itself. Yeah, an agent who she felt supported by, editors right. who she felt were really doing the best work for the books. Um, and I loved that story about the cove, about when she, the first book, I mean, I loved the whole story about her sister giving her the idea, et cetera. But also I loved that she went to Leslie Gelbman, who we've talked about before because Leslie was Nora Roberts's mm-hmm. uh, editor and was J.R. Ward's editor. So, yeah. Um, and Jane Ann Krentz's editor. So, I mean, somebody who we've is in the ether as an important voice in romance. Um, but when she talked about Leslie Kelman responding and saying, okay, so this is the plot, but where's the story? Now tell me the story. It's so remarkable when you're right. I mean, an editor just could have easily said, this is not going to work for you. And then, right, she doesn't get to travel down that path. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I think that part I I was really interested in because it feels like, and I think this is, you know, you obviously are in publishing in a way I'm not. It is clear to me when I talk to people, to other authors now, that there's still a real sense of, you know, it takes a village to to be a successful author in publishing. And who is that village and who's supporting you and, you know, or your awareness of them as people that have helped you along the way. And how long is standing? You know, her talking about Robert Gottlieb's 
many, you know, his kids and his wife and the way that yeah, she she's knows outlasted people. so many right. people in his life. And it <laughs> at these relationships, it feels different in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, I'm a writer, so I don't know what it's like to be other things. Um, but I did for many years have a job in corporate America and the relationships don't feel quite so personal in those jobs. I mean, the, but this long-standing yeah. editorial relationship, long-standing agent relationships, these relationships where somebody knows your kids and knows your family. <laughs> and we talk about books being or- orphaned, authors being orphaned by their editors, and it really does feel that way. You know, we now are smart enough and record these kind of right after we're done. Immediately right? so after the conversation. Just got after the, you know, and so it's interesting because the first thing you think of is sometimes not necessarily, but I was really interested in her talking about the golden age of romance. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, you wouldn't realize it at the time, but looking back that she could say, like, of course. Well, I mean, just the story, the way the story goes, where, you know, she went to a lunch at the plaza right. with, like, sales, and they <laughs> offered her a giant deal for more historicals, like, at this lunch at the plaza. I mean, right. That doesn't happen Look, anymore. Gone are the days. <laughs> I mean, maybe it happens for someone else. Colleen Hoover probably gets lunch at the plaza. I actually don't right. know if you can have lunch at the plaza anymore. But the point is, <laughs> um, you know, it really does feel like there was this moment in time when so many writers were just powerhouses. And now, it, what's interesting is I was thinking as she was talking, oh, well, you know, there is something going on right now, right? There are writers who are powerhouses right now. Yes. Um, but it feels like many, many fewer. She talked about getting letters, right, from uh, her readers. But powerhouses now sometimes are grassroots, mm-hmm. right? The like readers. Like TikTok. Yes, right. The readers have decided that this person is a powerhouse. But she didn't talk very much about readers. No, no, no. For her, it was very much like she seemed to feel as though it was a top-down kind of. She was she was part she was of the publishing up. ecosystem, right? Uh-huh. And I thought that was also just really interesting to consider the way our relationship with authors have changed. But at the same time, like, right, she's really plugged into Facebook. She updates it every day. Like, uh-huh. this is not someone who is disinterested in the no, reader's not experience. But just how that's one big thing that seems very clearly different. Yeah. I was grateful to hear her talk about burnout because it's something that I think a lot of us are thinking about right now. Uh-huh. You know, nine books in three years in the 90s, the early 90s. That was a lot. That is a ton of work. And it feels like that was a huge ask from her publisher. And I'm glad that she talked about just like her brain kind of just fizzing out and needing to have a moment of something completely different to rejuvenate herself. I loved a lot of that conversation because I think that she is one of those people who made a career of writing as a writer and has evolved by virtue of, luckily, her own passions and the way the market demanded. Well, and then that was interesting because, right, like, we we see the clear evolution, right, from romance to romantic suspense to kind of thrillers, right? Some of that had to do with now I can just write one book a year or one book every two years. Mm-hmm. But I was also really interested in what would drive her to go back and then rewrite books 
Oh, yeah. That was fascinating because she's a writer, right? She's a craft. She's a craftsman. We've talked about this before that, and I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth because we didn't ask her this, but we've talked about this sort of, some people think of themselves as artists and some people think of themselves as craftsmen. And I mean, it feels like a true craftsman's choice to say like, that book bums me out, which is what she said. Yeah. Well, and I think that, I think there further evidence of that is the discussion of you can't add, you can't revise if there's nothing on the page, Uh right? The first draft does not matter. Right. right. That's just the raw material, right? Like, and that's the thing. The artist is like, okay, I've got one shot with this huge block of, you know, clay to make my sculpture. Uh-huh. But writers are different, right? And I thought, I thought that was also really interesting to hear her process. And it doesn't surprise me at all, it's a bit of a segue, that someone who herself is so funny and so sharp and so, you know, kind of observationally on point, would think that humor is a really key ingredient oh my God, to the making hystericals. A the hystericals. That's oh, yeah. perfect. I mean, hilarious. And yeah. I mean, the fact that right away when I called out the Sherbrooke Bride at the very jump, she was like, yeah, we call those heroes assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we totally do. But, you know, things are different, but they are also the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there's so much about what she said, especially when she spoke about conferences and the craft mm-hmm. workshops and the this is the only way you can do it and throw everybody else's book out. You only use mine. Right. You know, the one thing that seems to run through all of these conversations, I think, to a person is don't let other people's rules impact your book. Um, your story is your story. And... You know, I hear so often, and you you do too, we see it constantly on Twitter and, uh, you know, in writing groups and all over the place, these kind of hard and fast, you must do it this way, you must traditionally publish this way, you must uh, independently publish this way. None of these people followed, not one, I don't think, I don't think one single person we've talked to for this series has followed the bouncing wall. Yeah. They've all had some moment where they've kind of deviated. And, right. you know, I love, I told, I had lunch with Hillary Ross and I told her I wanted to put sex in a regency. And yeah. she said, go with it. It made me think so much of Vivian Stevens and how mm-hmm. Vivian just kept saying like, yeah, do what you, do you. And that's what makes the books good. Mm-hmm. Right? What a conversation. That was pretty awesome. Life goals. It's great. It's great. <laughs> um, Catherine's latest book is Reckoning. It came out in August, um, so it is on shelves now. We will put in show notes all the books that Jen and I have loved by her over the years or some subset of the books that I have loved over the years (laughs) by her because I've loved so many of them. Um, Obviously, with the caveat that these are older historicals, so, you know, enter with caution. They're going to be bananas. (laughs) I can promise that. Look, if the author was calling them hystericals as she was writing them, then the amplification of that can only be more amazing. Well... I said on I said with her that I spoke with Sophie Jordan this morning, but and we talked about the grovel. Like she really does it. She knows she knows the job when it comes to a grovel. These heroes have to have to be broken, or what did she say? Disciplined. They like it though. The other thing Sophie said to me was um, talk about taking the finger, and I think mm. that's true. I think anybody yeah. like 
When you dip your toe into these old Catherine Coulter historicals, that's what you're going to get every time. A real take-the-finger experience. Perfect. I'm Sarah McLean. I'm here with my friend Jen Prokop. This is Faded Mates, and you can find us every Wednesday. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors, Lumi Labs and Kara Dion. Be sure to check out Indiscreet Kara's book right now in KU or print. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.